This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we pray also for, that you be made complete. For this reason, I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we come to the end of this chapter and we're going to talk a little bit about discipline, church discipline, talk about self-discipline, also about uh, unity in the church as Paul is rounding out his letter. And as he was spent the last several uh, chapters, Paul's been playing a little bit of defense, hasn't he? He's got these accusers, these attackers, uh, folks who say that they are apostles and they've come into the church at Corinth and they are saying bad things about Paul. Paul's been having to do a lot of defense, and uh, hasn't he, and boys and girls. And yet, uh, he says, uh, you know, he loves this church and he's going to visit them, you know, a third time, one more time. And he says when he comes, uh, he is hoping, with all hope, that he's going to find this church well-ordered and in good shape. The last thing he wants is to come to the church and find out that all these sins and problems uh, that he has been dealing with, uh, that they have uh, gone away, that they have repented of these things, and that they are back on the right track that they need to be. Now, if you look at the end of the 
last chapter, chapter 12, you'll note that here the Apostle Paul uh, says, for I am afraid, verse 20, for I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you not to, excuse me, you to be not what I wish and may be found by you not to be what you wish, that perhaps there will still be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. So Paul here is is concerned that when he does eventually come back to Corinth, he doesn't want to have these sorrows all over again. Remember, the last time that Paul personally came to the church at Corinth was what people often call the sorrowful visit. That is, the first visit was when Paul planted the church. The second visit was that sorrowful visit where Paul had to confront a number of of the brethren who were living sinfully and uh, abiding by false teachers. He had to write a severe letter, you'll remember also. And Paul just said, you know, uh, because of that difficult time, and and there were many accusations back towards Paul as well, and... uh, and, and Paul had to deal with that, and that was hard. And so Paul said, you know, maybe it's, it's just as well if I just give it some time, give it some space, I'll continue to write to them, but I won't visit them uh, just yet. Well, he does want to visit them, and he is planning to, and, but yet he is saying this in verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He appeals to the law of God uh, and uh, says, you know, everything... In the court, uh, the truthfulness of it was determined by a multiplicity of witnesses. And so here is Paul coming many times uh, as a witness before God uh, that he is faithful to this congregation and let God judge between them. But he doesn't want to come again with sorrow. He doesn't want to have to come as the disciplinarian. And he's asking them, pleading with them, to please seriously deal with these things in their lives and in their church life so that it won't be an unpleasant visit. It won't be a difficult, sorrowful visit. Uh, but rather, it would be a mutually encouraging, mutually affirming, loving time together between uh, apostle, church planner, and this congregation. But if they continue to follow the false teachers, then Paul says that he is going to have to exercise the authority of an apostle in terms of discipline in the church. Now, one of the accusations that was being made by these other teachers against Paul was that he was really not a true apostle. They were the true apostles. Uh, He was somewhat of a a charlatan. He couldn't be trusted. And that they should follow uh, themselves as the teachers. Well, Paul here is, is, is saying, look, you want proof that I'm apostle and an apostle, uh, I can show you proof when I come in severity. I would rather not do that. I would rather come in love, in meekness, in encouragement. But for the sake of Christ and for the sake of your well-being spiritually, I am willing to demonstrate the power of Jesus Christ through the discipline, through the office that God has entrusted to me. Let's look at verse 2. 
and I'll catch you up here in what I'm talking about. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. So he is saying, look, you guys want proof of my apostolic power. I I may show it to you in terms of my authority to put out of the church and to admit, to open the doors and to close the doors. Now, I want to give you three thoughts this morning. Number one, number one, we're going to talk about church discipline through verses one through three here. Church discipline. Not a popular subject to talk about, but it's an important subject to talk about, and we need to talk about it. Number two, I want to talk about self-discipline, because all church discipline really begins with self-discipline. All church discipline begins with self-discipline, verses 5 through 10. And then verse 11 to the end, an exhortation, a final exhortation to unity. Okay, Those are going to be my three points. Church discipline, self-discipline, and unity. Those are the three final thoughts that Paul gives to the Corinthians in this letter before he comes and visits them. Now, let's talk about church discipline because this is not a popular subject. Um, and it, it, is, it is not a subject that people like talking about often. And it's probably even less, probably even less popular in exercise of church discipline. But it is in the Bible. And it's important. And it's good. And now... People often think discipline, they think spankings, right? They think punitive. And that's a part of it, but it, that's not all that there is to discipline. You know, when the Bible speaks of discipline, it often speaks about discipline in terms of athletics, in, in terms of training, in terms of exercise. Uh, boys and girls, you can think of uh, Olympic athletes or football or basketball players, whatever is your favorite sport, baseball whatever it may be, whatever particular sport that you love uh, to play in, participate in, or or to watch, it requires a level of discipline. Now, especially the higher you go. When you're in rec league, well, you know, you you go to practices, you know, a couple times a week, and and you have games. And so the level of discipline is is fairly low, isn't it? Okay? Uh, You're learning. uh, You're not being paid big bucks. uh, There's not a whole lot that is expected of you, you know, and you will probably be greatly encouraged by family and friends no matter how you perform, okay? You, you move up. <laughs> you move up in, in, in the leagues, however, uh, things begin to change. Uh, schools put out money for a scholarship. Well, they are going to expect you to put in a little bit more time, a little more discipline, a lot more training. Uh, in a sense, that becomes your job. Uh, outside of the classroom and studying. And, uh, they, and then if you go higher from college to the professionals, well, then it, it's an entirely different level. Uh, this is your career. And they own you. They own your body. I mean, they, they, they expect you to eat right. They expect you to take care of yourself. Uh, they are going to work you. They're going to train you. Uh, they do this in college, too, at a certain degree, at certain programs. Uh, and, uh, you know, they have professional dietitians and weight trainers and all kinds of specialists at the big universities when it comes to getting you in shape that you need to perform at your peak performance uh, in that sport. 
Well, and then it's all the more so when you get to the pros. And, and it requires a level of training and a level of discipline to, to perform at these kinds of levels where the expectations are very high and at the highest levels where they're paying you extraordinary amounts of money uh, to, to perform. Well, the Bible often speaks about discipline in a very similar way. It's not just punitive, but it is also uh, to be seen as training and exercising and getting yourself in shape. Uh, Paul says, he, he even compares it when he writes a letter to, the, to Timothy about, you know, the, the athlete competes for the prize, for the wreath that perishes. But we're running a race for an imperishable wreath. We're running a race for an imperishable prize. And that's going to require levels of discipline. And it requires self-discipline, but it also requires corporate discipline, church discipline, as, as a community. Uh, we are disciplining ourselves. We're disciplining each other. Uh, for this for this race that we are running. And there are many obstacles. Our own flesh resists the training. It resists the discipline. You guys know how it is. that You don't have to be an athlete. Some of you play a musical instrument. You know how it is. You get done with school and you've got that hour of piano practice and you don't feel like practicing the piano that hour. That, you know, your flesh doesn't want to do it. But uh, we, we have to do things. We, we need to make our schedules not according to how we feel, but what we need to do and what we need to accomplish. Same in the life of the church, in the life of the Christian. Uh, we have the flesh that is opposing, uh, the sin nature that is opposing this kind of discipline. We also, uh, in addition to that, we have the world that's saying, don't go the way of Christ, don't go the way of that straight and narrow path that leads to eternal life. Follow the broad way. That's where most people are going. Go our way. Go our way. And the commercials telling you, go our way, do our thing. Spend your time, spend your money, spend your resources, indulge yourself like, like we do. And this will be, make your life happy. And, and you have the devil, satanic attacks. The devil seeks to disrupt you uh, from pursuing a course of discipline, a life of discipline. So we have all these uh, adversities against living a, a godly, disciplined life. Now, it must always begin with faith in Jesus Christ. Don't anybody go out of here and think that the Christian life is all about do this and do this and don't do that. It's first and foremost faith in Jesus Christ. That's where we get the strength for what we need to do. We look to Christ. He is our salvation. He died for our sins. He was raised from the dead. But now that I've received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, what does his lordship look like in my life? Well, what does Paul say? Paul says, verse 4, Indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. Jesus Christ died in humiliation on the cross. He was raised by the power of God. Now what does Paul say? For we also are weak in him. That is, we suffer the humiliation of falling with Christ as we take up our cross. Yet, what does he say? We will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. So as we live a life of discipline, and a life that is under the discipline of the church, the, that though we experience these weaknesses, we all fail in many ways. The righteous man falls seven times but gets up. Uh, we fail in, in many different ways. The, uh, the best of men are but men at best. Yet, nevertheless, because of the Spirit of God, the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, that is the same power that is at work within you if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit is dwelling within you he is the one who raised Jesus from the dead, and he is helping you. He's training you. He's equipping you to live that life of discipline that you need to live. 
Now, Paul is saying he didn't want to come as a disciplinarian uh, to the church because uh, of their sins. He didn't want that, but he was willing to do it. He was willing to show the, the apostolic authority that Christ had entrusted to him for the sake of their well-being. Now, there, there are several reasons why we need uh, discipline in the church. Let me give you a, a few reasons why we need discipline in the church and why this is important, why Paul had to write this. Generally, there are often three, three primary reasons. Number one is for the glory of God. That God is glorified by well-ordered churches. God is glorified by well-ordered, well-regulated, humble, imperfect, yes, but yet purposeful churches. People who are earnest about serving God, loving God, and living according to a disciplined life. God receives glory. The non-believer out there, he sees your disciplined life, and it causes him to glorify God, whether he will acknowledge it or not. So the glory of God is number one. Number two, we need church discipline because we need to uh, bring back the wayward. When, when we, the Bible says in Isaiah, we all like sheep go astray. And when we go astray, we need the church to help bring us back. When we go astray, we need to be brought back. And so church discipline glorifies God. It helps you bringing you back into the fold. And then thirdly, it, it helps the church, it helps everybody else to remember to fear the Lord. Uh, boys and girls, you know what it is when one of your siblings gets in a little bit of trouble and you go, ooh, hmm. yeah, maybe I need to clean up my act a little bit here too, right? It causes you to pause. Uh, you think, you know, that could have been me too. I just didn't get caught, you know? And uh, maybe I need to quit doing that too. Right? Right. I've been there. <laughs> so you, you, it, it causes the church to fear. When, when, there's, when there is uh, loving, humble, consistent discipline in the family or in the church, it has a sanctifying effect upon everybody else as well. So we need these things. Now, if you were reading your newspapers this week, you saw what happens when a denomination no longer practices church discipline. That one of the effects is that the church continues to go further and further and further and deeper and deeper into sin and apostasy. And if you were reading your newspapers this week, you saw that uh, the magic number, I think 22, this 22nd Presbytery, now in the PCUSA, the mainline Presbyterian church, voted this week that uh, uh, impenitent uh, homosexuals practicing may indeed be ordained to the office of the gospel ministry. That now, basically what the mainline Presbyterian church has said, that it doesn't matter what your practice is sexually anymore. You can do whatever you want now. Now, and for those of you who are visiting, that's not us, by the way. Okay? <laughs> okay? We, we left that denomination. Uh, we left it decades ago. We saw the handwriting on the wall. I mean, you know, this is only coming about... I mean, they were denying the deity of Jesus, which in some ways is far worse decades ago. You know, I, I'm glad people are leaving over this issue, but 
I, I almost want to say to them, friend, where were you, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago when they were ordaining men who didn't believe in the full deity of Jesus Christ? I mean, what we're seeing today, that is just, that's just the fruit of, what they, of the kind of men they were ordaining decades ago. So we say to our friends who, who are leaving, welcome, uh, the water's warm, come on in. Uh, but at the same time, you know, brother, you, you should have been here years ago. Uh, but nevertheless, how do you get there? I mean, how, how, do you, how do you get from a church that had church fathers like Charles Hodge and A.A. Hodge and B.B. Warfield and, and J. Gresham Machen and all the rest, the, the, the great and godly uh, men, uh, that, those are the northern guys, the southern guys, uh, you know, Thornwell and, and Dabney and the like, and, and how do you get from there now to a church that says, hey, it doesn't matter what you do sexually anymore. It's okay. It doesn't really matter. You can, you can go ahead and be a minister in good standing and will not discipline. How do you get there? Well, one of the ways you get there is, is a lack of discipline in the church. It's a, it's a lack of sticking to the Bible and, uh, and, and saying that not only is this what we're going to preach, but this is what we're going to practice. And uh, so what we're talking about is very, very relevant. Uh, we, we're reading about it in our, in our papers today. How did, the, how did the mainline Presbyterian church get in its situation? A lack of discipline has a lot of problems. I, there, there are probably a bunch I could read. But I'll give you five, five. Five causes or effects that come from a lack of discipline. Number one, there's a compromise with sin. When there's a lack of discipline... There's increasing tendency for individuals and the community, the church, to compromise with sin. When sin is no longer seen for its utter sinfulness, uh, people begin to think that it's okay. People get comfortable with it. It, it begins to spread. Paul says it's like leaven and uh, that it leavens its way. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, he said. A little bit of sin left unchecked, a little bit of Sabbath breaking, a little bit of idolatry, a little bit of greediness covetousness, materialism, a, a little bit of gossip, a little bit of uh, anger, a, a little bit of theft. Uh, and all these things begin to leaven their way through the church. church becomes more and more with, like the world. Secondly, it compromises our witness to the world. If, if we don't practice church discipline, then we become increasingly like the world and we compromise our witness to the world. Paul in the book of Romans said it like this. He said that the Gentiles see our inconsistencies and they blaspheme the name of God because of our inconsistencies. And we've all heard this at times. I don't want to go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. Right? A common charge. Common charge. But sometimes uh, we give them reasons to think that way because we don't discipline the church. You know, I, I, uh, I have a friend here in town who got kicked out of one of the uh, local clubs. I won't say which one, but what, because he, he, he wasn't showing up to the meetings. And apparently, if you want to be a part of this group, you got to show up to so many meetings a year. And he didn't make that many meetings. And they cut him out. And I thought, wow, can you, I mean, we, we have so few churches that'll do that. And yet this civic organization was willing to do it. So you, you don't, you're not here. If you don't think we're that important, then you can't be a member here. 
So we, we have civic organizations that exercise more discipline than a lot of our churches in, in, in our community. Uh, number three, it dishonors Jesus. It dishonors Jesus. This may be one of the worst of all the effects of lack of discipline. Jesus is not honored. Uh, number four, it leads to apostasy. We've talked about that. And then number five, this is a tragic one. It leads to self-deception. Self-deception. People who think they're going to heaven, but they're really not because they've never been disciplined they, and, they, and uh, they don't believe the truth. They've never really repented. They have kind of an easy believism. Uh, they are, as Paul says in one of his letters to Timothy, they are those who have a form of godliness, but it's devoid of power. And they like men to tickle their ears, and they're really not truly repentant over their sins. They've not truly trusted in Jesus Christ. So it leads to self-deception. Now, how do we go about this? Look again. Paul said, uh, in, in our text, he said, I will not, if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Now, what is he, what is he talking about? here in, in terms of discipline. Let's talk about how do we go about this. Um, look at Matthew chapter 18 in your Bible. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Matthew 18. And look at verse 15 to 20. Uh, this is a very common passage that I hope all of you will be familiar with when it deals with this subject. Some of you are already familiar with it. This is a little refresher for you. For those of you who come from a tradition where church discipline has never been talked about, much less exercised, let me help you out here. Matthew 18, and starting at verse 15 down to verse 20, uh, Jesus here tells us, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So what we have here and I'll talk more about this in my second point, about self-discipline is broken down. And here's a brother who, is, who has sinned. And, it, and this, uh, now, there are certain sins that we, we all sin, and we can cover certain sins in love, okay? Uh, but some sins, and this requires wisdom, need, need to be dealt with, okay? And here's a situation where the, this one particular brother has sinned, maybe even sinned against this other guy, and he says, go and show him his fault in private. That is, talk to him privately, quietly. Uh, and if he listens to you, that is, if he repents, he listens to you, you've won your brother. Now, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more witnesses with you. So here's, let's just say, here's a guy who's uh, run off with his secretary. And, and he's left wife and kids. Now, what do we do? I mean, what do we do that? And that happens in the fallen world. A guy in a church, he's there every Sunday, but he's tragically is run off with his church secretary. Okay? Now, a lot of churches, they're going to do nothing about it. Absolutely nothing about it. In fact, he, he might even divorce his wife, leave his kids, and all he has to do is sit somewhere else in the church. Just take another pew, and, and nothing's going to be said about it. Now, that's a tragedy because uh, 
the church loses, the, the, the individual man loses, the wife certainly loses. So what do we do? If, if, if the brother has fallen into this grievous sin, you go to him privately, you speak to him privately, and, and you seek to win him, seek, say, brother, you cannot be doing this. You, you, you cannot live this way. The Bible says that, 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 that there are no adulterers in the kingdom of heaven. You, you must repent. And then by adulterers, I mean, obviously David committed adultery. By that I mean impenitent adult, adulterers. You, you must turn from this sin. You must, you must leave this sin and go back to your wife and seek her forgiveness. And if he listens to you and if, he, if, if God uses that in his life and convicts him of that sin, he says, you're right, I, I, I have done wrong. I need to go back. You've won your brother. Uh, but if he doesn't listen to you, verse 16, then, you, then you, you need to help. You need to bring in some reinforcements. Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And make sure, you, you know, you've got to make sure too you, you got the situation right and the facts are right. Uh, don't jump to conclusions necessarily. And so... Jesus says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, that is, you've brought others, you've come back to this brother again, and you say, look, man, you, you, we really love you, and we're coming in love, we're coming in a spirit of humility, we're, we're checking ourselves, we're taking the log out of our own eye to see the speck in your eye more clearly. We, we are praying about this, but we, we continue to believe that you are on a very dangerous course here, and we are pleading with you to turn from your ways, to repent of your ways, and to go back to your wife. And so you've brought others into the picture. Now, again, this is still private. Still dealing with this privately. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, in our circles, we have always, well, I shouldn't say always, but we have interpreted verse 17 in our circles, tell it to the church as to tell it to the elders, the elders being representatives of the church. At least in our system, that's what we do first. Um, we, because the elders are your elected representatives of the church, that if you and maybe some others are dealing with a situation and you are not able to privately get him to listen to you, that you would come to the elders. Now, as small as we are, elders are often used earlier in the process anyway. Uh, often the elders are used as the two or three witnesses to come along uh, and, and our involvement often comes earlier in the process when we try to deal with these things. But nevertheless, um, it's still, this is still, uh, we, we keep the matter as confined and as small as the sin itself. Uh, so I don't want you to think, well, I, I've committed this sin and, you know, this is going to go before the church, the whole church. No, 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 no. You know, we we believe that the that the matter should be as confined and as small as possible. Now, so we would, might tell it to the elders. If, if he refuses to listen to the church, if they refuse to listen to the elders, uh, and we have dealt with somebody for a while and they're not listening to us, then it says, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. That is, that now their status as a member in the church is, is now in jeopardy. What Jesus means by a Gentile or tax collector is that of an unbeliever, somebody who is outside the covenant, somebody who is outside the visible church. Now, that's not to say they can't be here in church on Sunday, but they will not be 
looked at as a member in good standing until they repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the evidence of their true faith in Jesus will be their repentance. It will be, it will be a turning away from this particular sin. And if they refuse that, then we as a church have this obligation to recognize them as one who is a non-believer. Now, they might be elect. You know, we can't see the heart. And God is not asking the church or the elders <coughs> to determine the heart. What we are, we are making is a functional judgment. We are saying, insofar as we can determine by your fruit or lack of it, we cannot in good conscience before God declare that you are a Christian. And therefore, we are going to have to look at you and treat you as though, for now, you are a non-believer. Now, we hope that by the grace of God, you will repent. You will believe. And when that day comes, we will, we will rejoice with the angels in heaven. The angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. And we will welcome you and, and we will pray for the grace of God that that none of us would be as the older brother who would not come and celebrate that person coming back and asking for forgiveness for their sins. But my friends, a lot of this just is not going on in the evangelical church. That's, you know, that's the thing that, that worries me about the evangelical church in this country. I mean, the mainline church, you know, they gave up on the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible long ago. I mean, they compromised their orthodoxy long ago. The evangelical church hasn't necessarily compromised their orthodoxy, but it's their orthopraxy that's worrying me. They're still saying, yes, we believe this book. Yes, we still believe in the doctrines in this book. But they're not practicing some of the very fundamental things that need to get done in the church. And, and so whereas I think the mainline church is compromised on orthodoxy, the evangelical church is compromising on orthopraxy, right living. And you need both to be a healthy church. You need both to be a healthy church. You know, uh, if you're visiting here today, Mark Dever, who I really like, he is the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Mark Dever has, he, he likes to tell the people that are going through the new membership class and likes to tell his congregation, please don't join a church that won't kick you out. Don't join a church that won't kick you out. Because that church doesn't love you biblically enough. If, if they're not willing, if, 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 you, if you can do nothing that will get you kicked out, well then, what does that say about their commitment to purity in, in Christian living? So, that's the outline of how we go about these things. Now, let me give you a, a few cautions here as we think about this. Matthew chapter 7, uh, as we go about the process of discipline, Matthew chapter 7 says we need to do it with a spirit of humility without being uh, judgmental. Uh, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 4. <coughs> these verses are often misapplied and misunderstood certainly by the world. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. And that's not to say we're not to make, uh, that we are forbidden from any moral judgment. That's not what this is saying. I mean, if you look just a couple verses 
further down in, in uh, verse 6, he says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs. Well, how do I know what a dog is? He says, Don't throw your pearls before swine. How do I know what a dog is? How do I know what a swine is if I can't make a judgment? So it's not forbidding all moral judgment. So what is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying, Don't be censorious. He says, in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by the standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So that our judgments must be tempered with love, humility, looking to ourselves. He says, why do you look in the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So one of the things that we see is if the church practices Matthew 18 and will practice discipline, one of the things it does, it has an effect on you. Because if, you know, if you're not living a godly life and you go to somebody else and saying, hey, you got this sin in your life, they can turn around and say, well, who are you to tell me I got this sin in my life? Look how compromised your life is. And so one of the effects that it has on us is it causes us to repent. I need to be living a godly life. I need to be living a, a, a consistent Christian life if I'm going to be of any use in going to other people. He says, take, uh, take the log that's out of your own eye first, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That is, judge yourself more scrupulously. Be harder on yourself than you are on others. Condemn yourself more than you would condemn somebody else. Judge yourself more strictly than you would judge somebody else. Galatians 6.1 says you need to look to yourself as you seek to restore the wayward, lest you be tempted. Be careful that you don't fall into pride thinking, well, I'm fixing this guy's problem. I certainly would never fall into that sin. We should always think we could be in that same position. We should never think, boys and girls, we should never think I could never do that. We should never think that sin's beyond me. I would never say that. I would never do that. My friends, you are capable of that and worse you're capable of destroying this world three times over. You just don't know it. I mean, you have, the, you have the same sin nature as Adolf Hitler does. You have the same first parents as Adolf Hitler, as Mao, as Stalin, as the worst men in the world. They, they have the same biological parents as you do. You're from the same human race as they are. And you are just as capable apart from the restraining influences of the grace of God to do what they have done. So we should never think that any temptation or sin is above ourselves. Now, look at uh, verse 3 and 4, and we see that God does use uh, th this discipline. And Paul says in verse 4, again, referring to Christ, he says, We also are weak in him. Yes, we are. Yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. One of the ways that God directs his power towards us is through his word and through the sacrament and through the discipline of the church. One of the ways that God keeps us on the way to eternal life, one of the ways that God keeps us in the ways of Jesus Christ is by the exercise of that discipline that he gave first to the apostles and then later to the elders of the church. Now, 
So that's the first part, church discipline. Now, let's consider, secondly, self-discipline, verses 5 to 10, self-discipline. Because after Paul has said that he doesn't want to have to come as a disciplinarian, but he's willing, he says, do this, though. Verse 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. So Paul asked the church, do me this favor. Before I come, look at your faith. Test your faith. Examine yourself. Examine your faith. See if you're really Christians. See if you really love Jesus. See if Jesus means more to you than anyone or anything else in the world. See if you are not bearing the fruit of Jesus Christ. Do you have the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. Do you have, do you have these fruits in your life? Are you abounding more and more in the grace of God? Are you keeping the Lord's day? Do you delight in the Lord's day? Do you delight in church? Do you delight in the word of God? Do you delight in reading it? Do you delight in hearing it preached? Do you, do you delight yourself in the, in the person of Jesus Christ, fully God, truly man, sacrificed as a substitute for me, raised on the third day? I mean, are all these truths about Jesus precious to you? Do you, do you long for the... The filling of the Holy Spirit. Do you delight yourself in the means of grace and you love it when the Holy Spirit shows up and He refreshes you and gives you that joy, that joy unspeakable, that joy, that knowing that my spirit uh, is crying out, Abba, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit is working within me. And Paul says, look, test yourself. See if, see if you're in the faith. Now, one of the reasons... Uh, I like regular observances of the Lord's Supper is for this very purpose. Because when we gather together around the Lord's table, we are reflecting on the death of Jesus, but the Bible also says that we should examine ourselves before we come and take of the table. That we, sh- that we should search ourselves uh, when we come. Um, in 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, just to remind you from many, many months ago, back when we were in 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, Paul says in verse 28, But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So when you take the Lord's Supper, uh, you are to examine, test yourself, and, and reflect on, on your Christian faith and life. How am I doing? Where am I failing? Are there areas that I need to be strengthening in my life? Uh, are, are there any relationships that have gone bad since the last time I looked, took the Lord's Supper and I need to repair those relationships? Is there anybody I need to, to get on the phone with and call and ask for their forgiveness? Is there, is there anybody I need to acknowledge a sin that I, I said something that was unkind or intemperate? Do I need to, is there anybody out there who's got something against me for, for reasons that are, that are my fault? You know, Paul says, be at peace with all men insofar as it is up to you. Now, there may be people who don't like you for, because you've been faithful. Okay? But is there anybody out there who's got things against me because of my failure, my unfaithfulness? And I need to make it right with them. And I need to go to them and at least attempt to do so. They may they, they not receive it, but I should nevertheless... You know, I, I knew a minister who, you know, was uh, on the road uh, and he was traveling around having to preach at a bunch of different conferences. And anyway, he was tired and, and fatigued and he was on the phone with his wife. He was a little curt with her and, you know, quickly got up and hung up. And 
Anyway, you know, he had this speaking engagement coming up, and he, he just said, you know, I, I need to go and call my wife again, and I need to, I can't, I can't stand up before the people of God and preach God's word knowing that I, I, I was intemperate with my wife. And, and so he, he excused himself and made another phone call to his wife and sought her forgiveness for that before he stood in the pulpit publicly to proclaim the word of God. I mean, that's, that's what the Lord's Supper does for us as well. The, the Lord's Supper says, you know, I can't come to this table in, in, without making this right with my, with my wife, with my husband, with my children, you know, maybe with my parents. I, I, need, I need to fix things. And, and so the, the Lord's Supper is a time to examine and take stock of our Christian faith and life. So let me ask you, do you practice regular self-examination? Do you, do you examine yourself and test yourself? Do you look at your faith? Do you, do you ask yourself, how am I doing? Uh, do, you, do you and your wife ask, how are we doing as a, as a married couple? Do you ask, how, how are we doing as a family? You know, how's, what's the spiritual temperature of the household? How are the kids doing? You know, are there some areas we need to work on before we come and take of the Lord's Supper? You don't have to wait for the Lord's Supper to do it. You can do it any time, but certainly the Lord's Supper is an opportune time. Look at verse 5. He says, Do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you fail the test. Indeed, you fail the test. The Spirit of God is dwelling within you. If you pass the test. If you are truly a Christian. And Paul says, I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Paul is saying, we are faithful before God. Verse 7, he says, Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved. Remember, there's that theme again, being approved by men. Certain men were not approving of his ministry, but nevertheless, uh, he's saying, I'm not doing this so that we can be approved, but uh, that you may do what is right, even though we may not be approved. Well, let me, I've got to jump on to the final point. And that is the exhortation to unity. Always a great closer for any letter, but certainly for this congregation, because how did we open up? You remember many moons ago when we opened 1 Corinthians chapter 1? You remember that? I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. And he goes on. But then what's the first thing he says after, after his introduction and his salutations? Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. The very first subject Paul takes up in his letter with this church. Division. Disunity. Some people are of Paul, some people are of Apollos, some people are of Christ. And so Paul ends his letter much the way he began 1 Corinthians with this subject of unity. You know, nothing is sweeter than, than the church, you know, uh, when it's united. Sometimes as a pastor of a small church, um, you know, we can get a little, uh, shall we say, insecure that you know, our church isn't as big as other churches. And, uh, you know, 
one of the things that I, one of the blessings I have found uh, when I am tempted to feel a little insecure uh, about uh, my own ministry is to think, yeah, we're small, and yeah, I just, a lot of times I wish we were bigger. Uh, maybe you know, maybe that's my own ego there. It probably is. And uh, but you know what, man, we are we are united. And there's a lot of peace in the church. And what a blessing uh, that is uh, to when the people of God dwell together in unity. How precious that is, like precious oil. And that has been one of the, my great comforts through, through the many years I've been here uh, is the, the harmony that we have often had uh, in, this, in this church. Paul says, uh, brethren... Rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. And may the God of love and peace be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, there, there's one where we say, oh, that's culture. <laughs> right? We, uh, the holy kiss, you just have to understand, that was, you know, much like you see today in the Middle East, you know, here, here, here. Some cultures, there's one on each, one side. Uh, sometimes it's one, one, two uh, on the other side of the cheek as well. So, but, but certainly, I think in our culture it's appropriate to greet one another with a holy hug there. But, uh, but he's emphasizing the, the sweetness, the unity uh, of uh, being together. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that uh, we are of one spirit, uh, and that we are to maintain the unity of that spirit in the bonds of peace. I mean, have you ever thought about the same Holy Spirit who dwells within you, dwells within each other in brothers and sisters and that we are the temple of God and therefore we must always be very careful how we treat the temple of God which is each other. It's amazing when you think about that. God has been pleased to dwell in us uh, and take up residence within us and so how important is it uh, to maintain that unity of his spirit? Let's pray together.